edition of Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. With so much rapid and profound change happening in global affairs, the conduct of foreign policy is challenging for individual states. We're a 27-member bloc of countries such as the EU. Coming to shared positions is more than challenging. With war in Ukraine, a rogue imperialist state in Europe, a rising totalitarian superpower, a politically divided status quo superpower, climate change and immigration, just some of the big issues Europeans are attempting to take common positions on, or at least not be divided by, it can be difficult to keep abreast of how EU countries are working with each other. To, to help us understand what's happening, we have speakers from three European capitals joining us today. From Brussels, Owen Dre is a senior researcher at the Wilfrid Mark Center for European Studies, a centre-right think tank. From Paris, we have Hélène conway Moray, a member of the French Senate and the Socialist Party. And from Berlin, Lawrence Norman of the Wall Street Journal joins us. Welcome to you all. Hélène, uh, if I could come to you first. The genesis of this discussion was when President Macron visited China and made some controversial remarks on issues like strategic autonomy, Taiwan, and transatlantic relations. Um, in terms of France's influence, and particularly France's influence under the current president, um, do, do you think France has an opportunity to, to lead the EU? Or are the maybe what I could call personal weaknesses of the president, maybe speaking undiplomatically, a certain overconfidence, are these personal weaknesses too great for him to take a, a, a European leadership role? Well, thank you, Dan, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to, um, to join you. Um, it's, a, it's a delicate question, really. Um, I do not believe that uh, it is France's role to lead the Union. I think we have 27 partners uh, uh, who are um, together to build and continue building a unique project which is based basically on uh, keeping peace on the continent and um, having enough interactions between themselves not to be willing to embark on what uh, has been unfortunately the history of our continent uh, wars bilateral wars uh, between the various partners that now have been at peace for the past 70 years so uh, France's role is to maybe articulate a vision uh, capable of a, um, giving uh, uh, an impulse in terms of um, you know um, the way the union can be more social, can be maybe leading indeed in some um, uh, areas such as uh, climate change, uh, uh, the rule of law, um, and defend democratic values. But it is not France's role to do that on its own, certainly not. So we do have a president, and you have remarked it, who speaks a lot, uh, maybe too much sometimes, um, uh, who may be right uh, in what he says, but he didn't articulate it at the right time or in the right way. Um, and indeed, it is a weakness. It is a weakness because uh, when France expresses itself, somehow, um, you know, it, well, like, while we do not speak on behalf of the Union, somehow it, it is us all that are concerned. Um, and I think, you know, our leaders today should be very careful that what they say sometimes for simply, you know, uh, internal politics or um, have it making a speech addressed to their own people, 
um, is now shared widely. And while it may be received properly at home, uh, it does create problems outside. And um, unfortunately, it's the, you know, the way the social media, the information now uh, is shared, you know, instantly without uh, maybe a context and that creates problems. Uh, Lawrence, I, I know you're based in Berlin right now and your, your beat is more European than specifically Germany. But um, with Germany, the, the other one of the, the big two in the EU now, any thoughts on who speaks for Germany and, and the relationship between the various big players in the coalition there? Just bearing in mind that I suppose they were only in, in office two months when the invasion happened uh, after such a very long period of a, of a, of a sort of very uh, long-standing leader in the shape of Angela Merkel. Um, any, any thoughts on, on how things are in Berlin? Sure, sure. The thoughts slightly of an amateur, and as you as you mentioned, I'm not the uh, primarily the German reporter. Um, yeah, look. At the end of the day, the Chancellor has the power and has the authority, and um, he will make uh, in consultation, um, but he will make the big decisions. And we saw that on tanks very clearly. It was patently clear that the Greens and Annalena Baerbock, the foreign minister, wanted the chancellor to move ahead on the on the tanks in Ukraine. Um, she basically said as much. She kind of undercut him a little bit in Brussels and on other visits that she made. Um, and he held out until he was confident, confident and comfortable and, and until he had what he considered a deal with Washington. So at the end of the day, the chancellor uh, is the power holder here, um, but it is unquestionably true that um, Olaf Scholz's position as Chancellor um, is a contrast in authority from Angela Merkel's position of Chancellor in her final years. Um, uh, Merkel essentially um, ran foreign policy um, and ran all the big decisions on domestic policy. She'd been around so long um, she'd been the center of shifting coalitions, um, and she, uh, when she made up her mind, things happened. That is not true of Schultz, um, and he does have to be mindful, uh, particularly of the Greens, who are equally popular in the polls, um, and who have very clear views on, on some of the foreign policy issues. So he's more of a consensus builder, but ultimately, the Chancellor speaks for Germany. Um, and it's the Chancellor who President Biden invites over to the Oval Office to discuss what to do uh, in Ukraine. If, if I may just add a comment to what Ellen said, which I thought was beautifully put about Macron's strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think, I think uh, Senator Marco Rubio put it, put it best after Macron's uh, uh, China-Taiwan um, comments. Uh, and he, when he said, and, he said and tweeted, um, this is very concerning, but does Macron speak for Europe? And the answer, as Ellen says, is no, formally, officially, he doesn't. But any French president is a powerful voice. Macron is a particularly powerful voice. And it's very difficult at times outside of Europe to distinguish what Macron says from the European position. And he is not careful enough in expressing himself. Yeah, I think few people would uh, disagree with that point. Owen oh, in Brussels, um, in, in terms of the uh, European institutions, Boré, von der Leyen, uh, Michel, 
in terms of the division of labor around the on foreign issues, um, what's your assessment on how that's working out? There's plenty of press rumors of bad relationships, particularly between two of those players. Uh, but what, what's your what's your sense of, of how uh, the institutional arrangements are working in Brussels? Well, I, I, I think, uh, Dan, thanks for the um, the um, invitation. It's always, it's always good to speak with you. Um, yeah, I, I think the perception is in um, in Brussels, certainly, that uh, von der Leyen and the European Commission have been leading the charge um, on both the Ukraine issue and on both the issue of uh, climate change. I think, um, you know, together with Roberta Metzola, who's president of the European Parliament, there is a feeling um, you know, that they have been probably um, quite robust in their support of Ukraine and quite robust in their, um, uh, what would I say, support of the EU's broader uh, climate ambitions, uh, notwithstanding some significant internal opposition in the centre-right to aspects of, uh, of the climate change agenda. Um, I think of all the leaders of the institutions, it's really um, Charles Michel, who comes in for the most criticism, uh, certainly in Brussels. Um, there is a feeling that he's not really concentrating on the core job of the European Council President, which should be the preparation and arrangement of the European Council summits. Certainly, you know, several diplomats, several countries would speak off the record about how you know the summits were relatively poorly prepared compared to his, his prede predecessors. There's also been a lot in the media about Michel, about his, you know, his desire for an increased travel budget. He has a particular penchant for uh, travel by private jet when most of the other leaders of the European institutions uh, travel uh, uh, commercial business class. Um, Borrell, again, is in a very difficult position as the EU's high representative. Certainly, he's always... Um, um, you know, around at the edges, he's playing a role in trying to get more ammunition, more military support for Ukraine. But I think the sense in Brussels definitely is that it's uh, Ursula von der Leyen who is who is leading who is leading the charge. Um, I'm not sure what what Lawrence's uh, take on it would be from from his perspective. Well, uh, before coming to to Alain uh, on on Russia, I, I did want to go back to you, Lawrence, because this is your, your really your your prime area. <laughs> terms of that those relationships in Brussels do you have any anything further to to add on 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 those relationships and how it's how it's working and how or not working I'm, a, I'm afraid boringly I'm going to totally and 100% agree with what everything that Ian said uh von der Leyen has been the star of the show she if anyone speaks to Europe on Ukraine given the different nuances and views in the capitals it is von der Leyen um and that is um that is partly because of the tensions between East Europe and West Europe is partly because um, the French and the Germans haven't always seen eye to eye. And it's partly because her team, uh, particularly people like Bjorn Seibert, have a very close relationship with the White House, with people like Jake Sullivan. Um, and they really have concentrated every aspect of Ukraine support within Brussels into their own armory. And frankly, you know, that wasn't inevitable. She saw the opportunity. Um, she felt strongly on this. She has a good staff uh, tightly around her who follow what she wants. And they really seize that opportunity, starting with the sanctions, going through economic support, the energy reaction, everything. She really 
um, she really has emasculated Michelle's role. Um, and um, she, she I, I would I would argue that she is um, the go to political voice of general European opinion, divided though it is on Ukraine and the spillovers. Okay, good, good. Um, Hélène, uh, as, as I mentioned, the issue of Russia, I suppose historically France has had better relations with, with Russia than some other countries in, 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 in um, the western part of the continent. It, over the longer term, could you give us an insight into how you and in, in your party and your colleagues in Paris are thinking about the relationship with Russia, whether under a different regime that there could be an accommodation with Russia, where Russia could come closer to Europe, could be brought into European security architecture, or even that it could be split from, from China uh, and it could be uh, an ally uh, in the possible containment of China. Mm -hmm. Well, um, historically, um, yes, um, there has been a good relationship between France and Russia. And I remember under Gorbachev, um, there was a very strong will on uh, Russia, uh, on Russia's side, to uh, come closer to the the West. Um, I think geography has to be taken into account. Uh, there is no division between the uh, European Union, if you like, uh, part of the continent, and then Russia. In fact. Uh, what Russia for a very long time after the 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 the, the um, after Europe didn't respond positively to Gorbachev's um, hand that was not taken, um, even though Mitterrand was uh, was quite willing to try to see how we could have a kind of a an appeased uh, relationship. Uh, Russia has. Um, uh, wanted to have a um a kind of a border that would through the various countries that belonged to uh or that were close to Russia in the past um have this protection um to prevent an invasion from the west um uh, i mean uh, on our side we fear an invasion from russia but we have to hear that they equally fear an invasion from us and of course, it's quite different from the United States uh, point of view, which is a big island, which was never invaded uh, by anybody, uh, to take into account both the history and the, the, the geography, which is basically a large plain, if you, you know, look at it. The, the major uh, mountains, if you like, that we provide a break are after Moscow. It's the Ural uh, Mountains. So um, where are we today? We are in this confrontation with um, a president which has a certain vision to, well, empirical vision, shall we say, is not the only one. Um, you know, uh, President Erdogan in Turkey is exactly on the same, you know, rebuilding the old Ottoman uh, empire and so on. Um, whether President Putin goes and suddenly Russia would change uh, fearing the West, I'm not sure. I think it is part of their kind of collective, if you like, uh, memory and psychology in the same way as if you go to Poland or any of the Baltic states, they fear the invasion uh, from uh, Russia and they live in fear of it. 
look at the massive investment in Poland today in, um, in, in army equipment to defend itself. So um, now the second point then about China, Russia has always feared uh, China on its uh, eastern border with millions, I think about 20 million Chinese living on the Russian side. And I do not believe that this fear of um, China at some point wanting to conquer some territories uh, that belong to Russia is um, is uh, is gone. I think at the moment they want to, and they have no choice, uh, as they have very few partners and friends after the invasion of Ukraine. Um, there is, you know, this temporary, I think, you know, partnership with China. I do not believe that it's something that the Russians want, uh, you know, in the long term. Um, for China, it's quite good because it means that they have the lead. And uh, today, you know, they buy Russian oil, they kind of help, well, they're not the only ones, but um, they, you know, they provide some help and, um, you know, in the future, they might, you know, remind the Russians of what they did at this particular point. Good. Uh, and look, for anybody who sort of might be critical of us not having a, a voice from uh Central Eastern Europe here, uh, particularly the uh, newer member states. Let me just say that the uh, four people would have been kind of too many for for a forty five minute session. Uh, I certainly intend to return to uh, this topic uh, with speakers from from that part of Europe uh, in the future. But maybe in the meantime, Lawrence, uh, you 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 you'll speak to um, diplomats from uh, those those countries, the former um, the, the former Warsaw Pact countries, if I can go back that far in time. Uh, as Alain said, you know, very palpable fear of being invaded. Uh, that's always been there, uh, maybe underappreciated by those of us further afield who, who don't uh, have the, the, the experience of, um, of Russian aggression. How, how serious do you think that is now in, in terms of the, the Polands and the Baltics? Um, in, in terms of how they they view the threat uh, and how they view how more Western countries in the European view the threat and how big a difference is there there? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is absolutely no doubt that they live in an existential fear of Russia. And frankly, let's be clear, I think this this is, this is the second bit of this that, that, that frustrates them about Western Europe. And I talk a lot to the to the to the Baltics and, and the Poles, etc. Um, there is every reason for that fear. This is not, you know, just the the the, the memories, the, the reflected memories of the 18th century. This is Georgia. This is Ukraine in 2014. This is Syria. This is two, uh, Syria is a little different, but whatever. Um, and and then this is last year. You know, they have reason to live in fear, and they have been making this argument for an awfully long time, and they were ignored, they were ridiculed to some extent, um, and then everyone in 2022 woke up and, and, and realised that, that they weren't entirely wrong, but there is a tension here, um, you know, uh, there is, um, uh, they, they, uh, the Baltics and, and the Poles can absolutely clearly say, look, we told you this was coming and it happened. Um, 
But I don't think many people in other European capitals would say, oh, this was an inevitable or, you know, we're, we're, we are doomed to live in conflict with Russia. I mean, Ellen described very nicely the French, um, the French tradition. And one of the points that Macron makes, which is true, whether you like it or not, is that if there is going to be a durable peace in the future and a durable settlement, that has to be a settlement in which Russia has a stake, um, because otherwise we will simply see repeated conflicts, a repetition, if you like, of, of, of what happened after 1919. Um, and 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 that that is a that is a huge threat to everyone. The questions are how do you do that? How do you do that whilst also assuring the Baltics uh, and and Poland that they are safe? How do you do it while assuring Ukraine that it will remain defended as a viable state and a potential European Union member? And perhaps even NATO member in the future, and it's very, very difficult to square that circle. Um, uh, but but there is thinking around that, and there needs to be. Um, so yeah, there's a tension here. There will remain a tension here because the level of fear uh, uh, is is so much higher in the east than it is um, in the west. Um, but I do think those who say we should simply ignore Russia. Um, and ignore Russia's stake in whatever follows this war. Um, they they are they they are stopping our problems for the future. And in that sense, I think Macron is is right. Very balanced uh, view there. Uh, Owen, could we pivot to Asia? Um, not a lot of talk about de-risking the relationship with China, and I'm I'm not sure people appreciate as much of how deep Ireland's trading relationship is with with China. In per capita terms, we export more goods to China uh, than the Germans do. Uh, so we already have a big relationship there. Um, the the Thornister Minister of Foreign Affairs made an important speech on China this week, uh, just on Tuesday, and he also mentioned this issue of de-risking. Um, you were, you're writing in the current issue of foreign policy about, about Ireland diversifying, or to, to borrow a phrase, de-risking its own relationship more with the United States, talking about excessive dependence on, on the United States. Do you, do you view a deeper relationship with China as sort of putting more eggs in one basket, or do you, would your view on Ireland diversifying its economic relations exclude China for fear of um, a number of fears that, that don't need really to be set out too, 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 too bluntly? Yeah, uh, no, I, I think the short answer is definitely uh, no, like uh, China should not form part of a, you know, a significant diversification. I think my point in, in foreign policy was uh, very specifically from uh, the budgetary perspective. In the sense now we have, you know, 10 US multinationals paying more corporation tax in Ireland than the entire Irish education budget. Um, you know, Ireland now, if the projections are to be believed, around 30% of Irish tax receipts this year will be uh, from corporation tax, and the average in the OECD is about 9 or 10%. So, you know, there's a huge um, over-concentration of risk. Um, and I don't see, I see a lot of debate in Ireland about how we're going to spend these big surpluses that are coming from corporation tax um, uh, in the years ahead. But I don't see a lot of conversation about what is the Irish strategy 
to diversify or to mitigate that, that risk in the future. Um, what I find fascinating is that, you know, if you were to ask, you know, um, essentially anybody in public service in Ireland, you know, they would all say, you know, Ireland is very much embedded into the US economically, politically, culturally, historically. But what I find fascinating is that Ireland, um, you know, it's been very slow to take on what the real responsibilities of such a closeness should be. Um, and I'm talking uh, specifically about uh, security and defense. You know, we spend 0.3% of GDP. We can't, we can't protect um, anything, including the 75% of subsea transatlantic cables that run near or close to Irish territorial waters. And that brings us back then, the other responsibility is China. Because up to two days ago, and the tarnished the speech, I'm not quite sure what Ireland's strategy was on China. I don't think Ireland really had, had a strategy um, on Ireland. Um, I think a good example is TikTok, European headquarters in Dublin, thousands of jobs. Um, it's a favorite location for government ministers of all parties when there's a job announcement. Um, yet, the same government has told public sector employees to take TikTok off their phones. So there's this kind of, you know, what exactly is the strategy on China? What I think is interesting is with, with the tarnished speech is that we've seen, um, you know, Ireland kind of step up to the plate in terms of running with the von der Leyen strategy on China, which is very much uh, de-risking. But I, I think it's, you know, as you mentioned, Dan, you know, a lot of people don't understand the level of economic dependence which Ireland already has um, on China. Um, in addition to, you know, the well-established historical dependencies on Ireland, so are on the United States. So actually Ireland is in a very difficult position. And I'm not sure if you saw, saw the Financial Times this morning, but uh, one of the holding companies, uh, PDD, um, it's the holding company for one of the biggest Chinese e-commerce sites has filed an intention to change its listing from Shanghai to Dublin. Hmm. So Ireland is really caught um, in this in this middle ground, but I would presume that at some political level there is pressure coming from the United States. I thought it was interesting that um, um, the the official White House readout of the meeting between Biden and uh, Prime Minister Varadkar recently did specifically mention China. Um, and suddenly, two to three weeks later, we have a major government Irish uh, major Irish government speech on China. The reality is that America will expect its allies and its friends, its friends in South Korea, in Australia, New Zealand, in Ireland, and in Europe, um, you know, to support them in their in their what they perceive increasingly as an existential um, economic battle with China. So, yeah, we'll have we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I think Ireland is in a very a very uh, delicate position. Elaine, in terms of your perception of China, um, in terms of opportunities for, for France, but also I suppose everyone is now focused more on the the challenges and the threats posed. Could could you give some thoughts about how you view uh, the risks of, of China and how France could de-risk, or even if de-risking is is something that's been spoken about uh, with your colleagues these days? 
Um, I think France, um, like um, all European uh, countries, uh, first of all, saw a huge opportunity with a, a massive market opening uh, to it, and the Chinese made big efforts to uh, attract us um, uh, on their um, in their country, but equally sending a lot of uh, Chinese students uh, to learn and uh, catch up uh, you know in various uh, areas and and now they you know they they have progressed extremely rapidly um so i think we were all very impressed with the opportunities uh with time and um certainly with what has happened in hong kong i think uh you know, the, the change in the Chinese regime, I think, as um, you know, uh, in terms of human rights with the Uyghurs and, and so on, um, which has been taken up at European level as well, um, has um, dampened uh, our, um, if you like, uh, our impression of, you know, the opportunities and what we wanted to do with the Chinese. We also witness uh, their buying of uh, major infrastructures such as harbors, uh, airports, and what they called very nicely the uh, the silk uh, routes, which in fact were, you know, initially from a commercial point of view, interesting for China, uh, producing massively uh, equipment and so on that we needed and which we're still buying. But um, by looking at it from a, a geostrategic point of view and political point of view, kind of uh, feeling that in fact China was uh, building dependencies, uh, and um, now we are at a turning point. I think everywhere, you know, uh, it was the five G um, um, period. Now we are in TikTok. There's actually uh, here in the Senate a, a mission on assessing whether we should ban it or not. So, um, you know, there's a kind of a reluctance now uh, with doing um, business with China. And of course, there is uh, this um, assertiveness and, um, and also claim that uh, China wishes to uh, become a, a leader from an economic point of view, but also from uh, a, a security defense point of view, and they invest massively in uh, um, in their army, um, in in building uh, army equipment and so on. And um, of course, we are kind of in the middle of the United States having assumed this leadership, um, and um, with whom we're, you know, sharing our democratic values and so on. And China now, from an economic point of view, imposing itself, but also. From a political point of view, and we do have an ambassador in Paris, a Chinese ambassador, uh, who is very vocal. Uh, you may have um, um, heard, you know, his claims. I, the first time I met him, he, he, he did say to me that he was uh, he was a fighter, he was a combatant. He said to me, and I said, you know, it's not very diplomatic for an ambassador to be a combatant. One would expect that uh, the combatants are left to uh, the military personnel, and that. You are in the talking, not in the fighting. But um, so that's that's where we are today. I think you know the, the reluctance, being careful as to, and having no choice but to continue doing business with China.
Right. Well, uh, that brings me perfectly to the point I, I, I was going to put to Lawrence um, around what, what must be the number one geopolitical risk in the world, and that is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, you were writing about this in, in your paper recently, Lawrence, and one particular line really jumped out at me. Um, on a, a how, what Europe is, how it's thinking about how it would react to an invasion, you wrote, quote, there has been no debate over scenarios that could play out or how and when the EU would need to respond. Now, I find that really, really striking that in all the conversations you had, there's an actual unwillingness even to think about what, as I say, is probably number one geopolitical risk in the world, um, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Could, could you just elaborate a bit more on what, what you're hearing and, and how head in the sand kind of approach there may be in Europe to this to this risk. One one diplomat said to me, it's the elephant they don't even want to bring into the room. Um, a couple of caveats, first of all, I was very specifically talking about EU debates and ministerial or leaders level or even ambassadors level. That is going to change. They are almost certainly going to talk about, uh, they are going to talk about China and they're almost certainly going to talk about Taiwan a little bit the upcoming uh, Gimnik in Sweden next week, the informal EU foreign ministers. I'm, I'm taking personal credit for them doing that. It's a, it's a joke, obviously. Um, but, but I think there is a realisation that they need to discuss at EU level. It is not, of course, the case that no capitals are working on this. It is not, of course, the case that informally discussions aren't taking place. And we know that the Japanese and their chairmanship of the G7 this year um, have already uh, the foreign ministers meeting um, a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, um, have already brought it up and it will come back at the G7. So that obviously requires Germany and France and Italy um, to start thinking about uh, a coordinated view. But um, it is certainly the case um, that uh, people have been afraid of having this discussion, afraid of what would uh, leak out of it on one side, but also afraid that it's a very divisive issue, as Macron made crystal clear to us all in, in China on Taiwan itself, which is wrapped within a fairly divisive issue over over the relationship with China. And, and so it's extremely difficult debate to have. And I think ultimately we will only see Taiwan addressed as a broader discussion of where we want to be on China with that as one of the risks that touches directly on this issue of de-risking, um, not, not just in the kind of geopolitical military sense, but if there were a if there were if there were a war in the Taiwan Straits involving China, Taiwan, and potentially the United States, the impact on supply chains, the impact on semiconductors would be massive in Europe. So this is part of the de-risking um, debate, but yeah, people have have kept away, away from it. I just wanted to add something, which I thought was, uh, again, Ellen's answer was very eloquent, but but she didn't mention one thing, which to me is is absolutely front and center on European feelings about China right now. And it's kind of striking because I think it's it's often true when you have a discussion about China, people tend to focus on the China-specific issues. China's support for Russia. Um, the February 4th, 2020 uh, partnership without limits, then followed by the war, did they know, did they not know, who knows? Um, and then the political support, the Xi visit. I mean, 
the that is shaping um the debate about what to do about China and about the potential geopolitical threats, not just Xinjiang or Hong Kong um, or um, or even economic problems anymore. It is the it is China's position on this war um, and and what it has done so far. And I think I think that cannot be lost. Um, so that's I mean that that's 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 how I'd, I'd answer your question, Dan. I just do think the questions around de-risking. Um, from China, uh, what that means, how that would happen, how you ensure it happens across the board in a in a uniform way, how that doesn't turn into um, confrontation with China, how you deal with the US pressure on that. They are the most important foreign policy questions facing Europe. Um, and, um, and we'll see how that evolves in coming months. I, I remain skeptical that we will come out clearly on one side or the other. We may try and muddle through. Okay, okay, that's a really important insight. And just to stress where I quoted you there, of course, I didn't give enough context. You were you were explicitly talking uh, about the not unwillingness to discuss the invasion scenarios in EU fora. Um, so just to be absolutely entirely fair to you that 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 um, that was the context of your your piece which jumped out at me. Oh, and in in, in Brussels. Um, how much discussion of Taiwan is there, or is the focus on Ukraine so great that really there hasn't been the, the bandwidth to to think about sort of a second uh, major war uh, igniting? Yeah, I think I think Lawrence is is, is very much uh, correct. I think he hit the nail on the head. You know, up to now there's been a marked reluctance in Brussels to even think of think about uh, Taiwan for all sorts of political and economic reasons, but also I think um, we shouldn't underestimate the lack of military capability um, in the EU to project its power outside. If you strip away um, the, French, the French Navy and the Charles de Gaulle, the aircraft carrier, you're looking at a very uh, especially with Britain now outside the European Union, you're looking at a very limited capacity to project uh, power. Like we're talking about Taiwan, but actually, you know, the EU doesn't have the ability to project power, military power into Georgia or uh, or its eastern neighbourhood. So I think I think um, I think that's a key thing. What's interesting is that if you talk to EU officials, to lots of EU officials and EU politicians, they will tell you that the EU response to Ukraine has been unbelievable, that the EU is incredible and that we're now doing all these things that you know nobody deemed possible uh, you know, two years ago in terms of arms transfers, ammunition stockpiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious because I think you know, war and the longer war goes on will tend to wear down any uh, consensus. Um, and I think, you know, we should be cautious of that. And we have to remember that um, Ukraine isn't the only, or China isn't the only cleavage in the European Union at the moment. And um, we're in the middle of embarking on a very divisive debate on the EU's fiscal rules. Um, we've got a very divisive debate still ongoing with EU migration policy. Um, we've got a real east-west uh, divide, as the other speakers have said about about Ukraine. So actually, I think you know it's not just 
an issue of Ukraine and Taiwan, you have to consider the broader context within the European Union, which is, you know, it's one crisis of money. Um, uh, Alain, in terms of, um, I think it would be fair to say that maybe France, amongst all of the, the EU member states historically, has been the country that uh, is most concerned about any sort of dependence or excessive dependence on the United States. And maybe Ireland's at the other extreme in terms of um, the, the trust and proximity we have to the United States. Um, how do you see the, the relationship evolving uh, and particularly that other elephant in the room, were there to be a second Trump term, um, how difficult relations might be in, in that context? Um, as Owen reminded us, um, uh, France has the only uh, capable army, really. Uh, it was a choice that was made, and the relationship with uh, the United States uh, goes back to Charles de Gaulle, who felt that you know France could be independent and afford to be so. Um, I did write a, um, a parliamentary report um, on the transatlantic relationship um, between France and the United States. And um, what, I, what I wanted to prove is in fact the dependency uh, on France um, uh, that France has towards the United States in the same way as we have towards China now. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of decisions were made a long time ago uh, to for companies, French companies, to move to uh, Asia, to you know for making profits, more profits, and also having this very tight relationship with the United States, which today builds um, a lot of the um, uh, parts that we use in our uh, military equipment. So um, the, the dependency is there. And um, uh, of course, Donald Trump had a fairly brutal uh, way of, uh, of engaging um, uh, you know, on many issues, which uh, made it difficult from a diplomatic point of view um, to know where he was going, because it was also quite unpredictable. Um, I think there was a kind of a fear at one point when uh, he declared that um, the, the United States were going to pull out of NATO, if you remember. Uh, and uh, um, we were not any more happier than our EU, EU partners um, in fearing that if they did so, uh, we will all be in trouble. And indeed, we would be far more in trouble now with the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, if that had been the case that uh, the United States had pulled out of it, because it is NATO is a military structure and it works well and it has provided protection for uh, the continent. So um, if Donald Trump was to, to come back um, to power, well, that would be the choice of the American people. So it will have to be respected. Being a second term, maybe we may be a bit more prepared uh, to know how to um, cope with him and uh, react uh, to uh, his, um, you know, uh, his behaviors. But I'm not sure that it will be a good thing for the West uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the relationship between the EU um, and, uh, and the United States. Um, yes. That's all. That's all I can say. Thank you. And we're, we're into the last uh, final minute. Uh, Lawrence, as somebody who works, uh, has worked for, for 20 years for uh, an American-based newspaper, um, what, what your, your, your own thoughts or thoughts of Europeans on a second Trump term and specifically on whether uh, there's a possibility of, of the US pulling out of NATO? 
um, I have to be very careful what I say about Donald Trump. Uh, let's let's just agree that you, the, the the vast majority of capitals in Europe, of which Budapest is one exception, would have serious concerns about what that would entail. Uh, would have serious concerns about um, uh, the, the the impact that would have on NATO and on the war in Ukraine. I think it's safe to say that. Good, thank you. Look, we've reached the 45-minute uh, cutoff time. I'd like to thank our three guests from uh, three European capitals for contributing and giving us their time today. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, the discussion as much as I did. Thank you so much again uh, for, for joining us, uh, all three. Thank you. Have a good afternoon.